welcome back to Whiskey and Wildcards. I'm Manuel Vest. I'm Vasant. And today we are reviewing the after post-apocalyptic action in a changed world and a Highland Scotch whiskey. Ooh. The after post-apocalyptic action in a changed world don't worry, I'm not going to keep doing that. Was <laughs> written <laughs> Was written by Sean Noakes, I assume that is uh, pronounced. Sean, correct me if I'm wrong. And it was published by Fainting Goat Games. They financed this via a Kickstarter campaign, and they raised a bit over $10,000, which was roughly twice of what they asked for. So there were a few unlocked stretch goals. One of those stretch goals was additional word count. And boy, it shows because this one is a bomber. It's It clocks in at 244 pages. It's quite a book. It's quite a book. It also shows a bit in the price. The PDF costs $22 on DriveThruRPG. And the premium color book in hardcover, which is the only POD option, will set you back $68 which also includes the PDF, which might seem pricey when you look at it just as a raw number. But then again, it is 244 pages. And let me tell you, those 244 pages pack a punch. That's a lot of peas in that sentence. But yeah, you are getting a lot of bang for your buck. So let us dive right in and tell us what you are getting. And one point I have to add, this was a request by Tiger Tail Boss. I hope you're still listening and that you enjoy this episode. Yeah, I would like to apologize for the long hiatus. Totally not my fault, but yeah, also <clears throat> totally my fault. We are hoping to be back on track with our monthly instillments from now on. But we'll see because, well, life happens. Anyway, getting back to the product. For starters, I'd like to address the overall style of the book. It's amazing. The artwork and layout are absolutely spot on. Artwork was done by John Gibbons, who also did a bit of additional writing. But overall, it's a joy to read. Typesetting, absolutely nailed it. Layout is pleasant on the eye. The main elements, like text boxes and everything, and page backgrounds are held in black and white. And they don't carry too much contrast. They accentuate, but they never oversaturate. It's really, really pleasant to read. And all the artwork itself is done in color, which could clash, but it doesn't, because there are no popping colors. It's all very muted in color, but without becoming boring. It has a very realistic and kind of gritty feel to it, which I assume is what they were going for, because it's a post-apocalyptic setting. And my head off to John Gibbons, he absolutely nailed the feeling. There is a lot of in-game fluff also which is provided as in-game texts, um, adventures of people living in the setting, which really help you get a feeling for the setting, which is white text on black backgrounds, which could be a bit hard to read if it was too much, but it's usually just one or two pages. Spot on. 
my only point of critique I have is the PDF has no links in it whatsoever, not even for the table of content. You have to manually scroll everywhere. And there is no index. On a 244-page book, that's kind of a bummer. If I use the PDF, that's kind of okay because I can just hit Control-F and use the search function. But I also own a softcover copy of the book, which I got through Kickstarter, which I assume was the only source for getting a softcover version of the book. It's a beautiful book in print, and going through it is pure joy because of just the way it looks. But not having an index makes searching for stuff really, really tedious until you know where everything is. And with 244 pages, that takes a long time. It does have a PDF table of contents, though. So if you aren't able to click links, you still have a table of contents in your PDF reader. Also, if you're reading this as a PDF... Take some effort to have a good double-sided view because a lot of artwork is double-sided and I struggle a bit with it because if I activate double-sided view at my reader, it would display it in the exact wrong order and all the artworks were torn up. So <laughs> I think that's less of an issue if you have it as a printed book and I guess, Manu, it works perfectly if you have it as a book. Yep, absolutely. Double-sided can be used to just generate page count. In this case, it doesn't. It really, really, really makes the setting alive or come alive because you have these vast images showing you exactly what happened at certain points. For example, there is on page six and seven is a semi-double-sided piece of art, which one page is full-page art and then page seven is half-page of art and a half page of text, which shows parts of the alien invasion, which I will be discussing shortly. And just having it reach over to the other side of page six and seven just makes it have more impact, at least for me when looking at it. Yeah, it works really well. I'm really impressed by the whole layout of this book. Well done. All right, after some praise, let's get on to a new topic with, well, even more praise because <laughs> the setting and dear God. Okay, so I drew the short straw and I get to talk about the setting and I will have to leave out so much because we only have so much time in a single podcast recording. And I could probably talk for three hours simply about the setting and the setting material in this book. Might as well do a reading. <laughs> <laughs> I just might as well do a reading of the book, yeah. So just know that with everything I am going to tell you now, there's gonna be so much more for you still to discover when you get that book. And I'm not saying if you get that book, I'm saying when you get that book, because you totally should get that book. But let me tell you why. The tagline for the after is, the war is over, the enemy has gone, reclaim the earth. The first thing they do is tell you exactly what that war was and what that enemy was. So I'm gonna try to keep this as short as possible, but... Good luck. Well... So the basic concept is we sent a quantum message out into space telling everybody about humanity and that we come in peace. And then a lot of scientists patted themselves on the back and the world at large didn't really care. And then something new happened and the newspapers stopped reporting about it. 
A year or two went by and then aliens showed up. Not the friendliest of sorts because they just encircled Earth, EMP bombed us back into the Stone Age, dropped big landers and released so-called gene bombs, which are really, really big swarms of nanites that have two effects. One, they transform life they come into contact with, which makes them grow biotech enhancements and also drives them completely mad. The second, even more important effect is it destroys modern technology. And this is going to become relevant later in this review. This period is known to the survivors as the harvest. The big aliens, like the ones that call the shots, were called the butchers. And they landed in big dropships and then had armies of biotech and engineered soldiers swarm the cities and big gathering places of humans together all life they could get their hand on, transporting them back into their dropships, which were, for lack of a better word, flesh factories, and transformed them all into even more obedient servants, or what the survivors now call ferals, which are just biotech-engineered mutants. This went on for decades, and humanity lost on every front. There was no winning. There were a few instances where they held back the butchers a bit, but once the butchers decided, oh, okay, you've had your fun, now let us show how it's done, humanity just got wiped from the plate in every encounter. That lasted until the fall, which is the survivor's term for the arrival of another alien race they nicknamed the Ghosts. The ghosts travel via gates, so to speak, in a kind of hyper or nether space or supernatural space dubbed the Breach. And they arrived and they kicked the butcher's butts. Which technically sounds good until you realize that they really only cared about fighting the butchers and they didn't care about humanity one bit. It's not even clear if they were aware of humanity existing. They just arrived and started fighting the butchers, and that generated a ton of fallout and made the situation pretty much worse for everybody involved. That went on for a few decades, which was kind of okay for humanity, because as long as they stayed away from the major war zones, they were left alone, more or less. And then somebody messed up something really, really big and the moon exploded. Nobody knows why. Nobody knows how. At that point, humanity was so far pushed back into the wilds and the wildlands and they were just busy surviving. The only way we noticed was, oh, yeah, there's now not a solid moon in the sky, but something that looks a bit fractured, and there is very extreme weather, and everybody that was living on coastal lines just died because tsunamis and everything. Whatever it was that happened, it signaled a change in the war. The butchers and the ghosts just straight out left Earth. There are notes in the book of some people still detecting signs of fighting continuing throughout the Sol system. It's not explained how they know that. I assume some observatories or something were still standing and they could just look at the fighting through big telescopes. And that was it. The enemy was gone. And then it was time to reclaim Earth. 
The breaking happened 47 years before the current day that the after begins. So now we get to the actual setting, because that was all just a prelude. The setting focuses on an area called the Wind River Valley and the city of Chapter. Just as I noted, it's 47 years later, so the year is now 2139. Not that that means much for anyone, well, probably for the librarians, but I'm going to get to them in a second. The city of Chapter was built by survivors that had fled to a big bunker area. And what they had also done was collected each and every book they could get their hands on. They thought we have to preserve the knowledge that mankind had amassed if we want any chance of surviving as the kind of people that we were before the aliens arrived. So they gathered all those books and protected them and made them their absolute priority. And they lived in that bunker for decades, for many, many decades. And only after they were absolutely certain that it was safe to, I mean, safe-ish, to resettle on the surface again, they opened the bunker doors and started a settlement. So this kind of has a bit of a Fallout vibe, but when reading it, it really didn't click as Fallout to me. It sounded like something not unique, I had something in the back of my mind that scratched it. It was like, yep, you've heard about this before, but not in an intrusive way, just in a, this is a cool twist for a post-apocalyptic scenario kind of way. And only later I realized that it very much reminded me of Fallout 3, where the Brotherhood of Steel has a chapter that actively collects intact books and you can sell books to them. So... These librarians founded a city and they named it Chapter because they are librarians and apparently have a knack for whimsical names. This city has been going on for a while and is now about a thousand inhabitants strong and it is ruled by a council. So it is not democratic. Some people on the council wish they could make a democracy, but they are debating every decision they make and they have something like a circle of people they consult for questions of ethics because the librarians have access to a lot of knowledge. So the main idea of chapter is rebuild society and humanity without repeating the mistakes of the past. Chapter is also home to a lot of factions and each of those factions have their own ideas on how to run the settlement or improve the settlement, expand the settlement and how humanity should continue forward. These factions are the librarians. Their motto is we will teach the world and their idea is through knowledge comes enlightenment. They just want to share their knowledge and use it to trade with other people. Like you can supply us with material and in return, we will teach your kids how to read. That is something about chapter. Everybody is literate because everybody goes to school. They never forgot all of that as it is customary in so many post-apocalyptic settings. Like education is still a thing in chapter and lots of places around. Only technology isn't, but I'll get to that. Then there's the Order of Silence, which I think is a really, really cool faction. They are not a faction in chapter per se. They live around and they live around because their motto is mankind must vanish. And when I read that motto, I was like, oh, and here is the doomsday cult. Nope. They just think that the aliens will return. 
that this is just a brief pause and when they return they must not find humanity. So humanity in their mind must be so good at hiding that the aliens will not find them when they inevitably return. Obviously lots of people had to have other ideas because there's a lot of settlement in the Wind River Valley but that's the order of silence. And I really like that concept. Yeah, it makes sense. Like what we are doing didn't work the first time because they targeted our cities and annihilated a vast majority of mankind with the snap of their fingers. So we must do everything to prevent that. It's a train of thought that makes sense in a certain way. So I really like the order of silence. Then there is the scouting guild. Their motto is, into the breach, my friends. And yep, pretty sure that is a reference to once more into the breach, dear friends. And I know that quote. I have no idea where it's from. They are a kind of classic adventurous guild. They are the people that are brave enough or stupid enough to venture out into the wild, to map the surrounding lands, make contact with other settlements if needed, and in general are just the most outdoorsy of the outdoor people. Everybody's a bit of an outdoor person here. I'll talk about that later. Then there's another really, really fun faction, the Star League, and their motto is, we must escape this wretched rock. So they looked at everything that happened and decided, well, our mistake was that we were only in one place in this galaxy. So what we need to do is spread among the stars and ensure mankind's survival by sheer numbers on more planets. So we need spaceships. Okay. Just let me paint the picture here. This is still a post-apocalyptic scenario and the world is still infested with nanites that disable most modern technology. And this faction is there and like, yeah, we have to get enough tech to work so we can build a spaceship and escape. <laughs> I love it. It's so mad. It has the vibe of mad scientists. It's awesome. Yeah, definitely. And then there is the faction... I personally disagree with. I guess it makes sense to have them. But when I read them, I felt like, why? <laughs> well, they're called the Seculum of Light. Their motto is Smite the Sinners. So by now you should have an idea of who they are. Yep. They are the post-apocalyptic fire and brimstone preaching Christians. Hooray. It literally says that, is that they are based on Christianity, just with a few twists in their teachings, but they are basically Christians. And I apologize if I sound like I'm religion bashing here. My main problem with them is not that they are a religious faction. My problem is that they are an absolute stereotype of the bad aspects of Christianity as a religious faction. I get why as a faction they make sense in a setting like this. Personally, I could have lived without them. <laughs> but that is literally really a critique on a very, very personal taste level. As a faction, in the book, they are really well done, they are well written, they have great NPCs, and they have great background material for them. It's really just me personally disliking this specific idea of a religious faction in a book. Well, that's fine. 
Then we have the chapter militia with the motto, defend the walls. They are not an army because there's not enough people for that, even if the boss of the chapter militia really, really, really wants to create an army and just conquer surrounding settlements for the betterment of humanity because war makes everything better. <clears throat> Moving on. <laughs> well, as I said, they're not an army. They are the police force of chapter. They patrol the streets. They keep law and order. Chapter has laws, but they are pretty much all oral at this point, even though the council is aware that with the size that chapter has reached and it since it keeps growing, they will need to write down laws soon as they won't have the time to judge every case because right now the council are also the judges for all criminal cases brought before them. So the chapter militia basically... They're a bit like street judges. They patrol, and if they see you doing something that has been deemed wrong by the council, then you might get a warning, or you might get a beating, or you might be arrested and taken to the council for them to judge you. There is no prison. They have cells for short-term incarceration. But Chapter doesn't believe in long-time incarceration because nothing is gained from that. They would have to feed you and you wouldn't be able to give anything back to the community that way. And in a post-apocalyptic society, that just doesn't work out. So the harsher penalties are forced labor and the harshest punishment is exile. Because... Well, you might have screwed up royally in chapter, but you may atone and maybe you can still be useful in another settlement. But you are a living human, so you are important for mankind to get back on its feet. And I think that's an interesting point here. I got the impression that post-apocalyptic settings are often an excuse for death penalties and lynch justice and stuff like that. And that's not the case here, and I like that a lot. Yeah, that is one of the big twists, so to speak, of The After. It's written to be a relatively positive post-apocalyptic setting. People are surviving, people are thriving again. And, of course, there are conflicts. There are conflicts within chapter between the factions, but they are resolved peacefully for the most part. There are no open wars between settlements or anything, with one exception which I'm going to come to later. And for the most part, people are just trying to get back on their feet and trying to get along. Of course, there's robbers and bandits and highwaymen and everything, but that is more like a small-scale, pseudo-medieval level of banditry and not the flat-out, typical post-apocalyptic outside of the settlements is only death. Yeah. There's a lot of danger outside of the settlements. Don't get me wrong. But it isn't presented in a way that makes you think, wow, how do people not just put a bullet in their head instead of having to live one more day in this wasteland? This is the complete opposite, and I really, really like that. But speaking of horrible things people do, there is the last faction in chapter, which is the post-humans. Their motto is augment yourself always. And this is going to take a bit ahead of the character creation chapter and the setting rule chapter. There is an option to play someone who was changed, who was infested by the gene bomb nanites and has suffered through physical and ability changes of their body. And most people really, really, really don't like those guys and are openly fearful of them because, well, mutant and yada, yada, yada. 
to be fair, a lot of people don't survive the change or just go mad. The post-humans think that the changed are the next step in evolution and that it should be actively sought out to get changed or acquire implants, which I'm going to get to in a bit. Yeah, I keep saying that, but don't <laughs> worry, I'm going to get to all those points. Yeah, there's a lot to get to. There's a lot to get to. Well, speaking of butcher implants, these are pieces of technology that were either part of a butcher or part of a mutated feral or something. And these implants can be implanted into humans at great risk. And those implants carry both positive and negative effects. If you've played Rippers or Rippers Resurrected, this will sound kind of familiar to you. It is a bit of that basic concept, but without an upper limit. You can just put as much of them inside you as there is room. The problem is the risk is really, really high. And if it goes wrong, that can literally spell certain death or doom for your character. The power gain is immense, but the downsides are also not to be trifled with. On the other hand, there are artifacts left over by the ghosts, which are called shards. And these shards come in various forms. They are not all crystals. Well, most of them are crystals, but in various forms, not like your typical diamond and everything. And those have only positive effects, even if some of those positive effects are very destructive. There is one shard in the book, for example, that just flat out erases all metallic objects or all metal in the near vicinity. That's going to be fun in a combat when everybody's knives and guns just fall apart. The problem with shards is if you use them, they have a chance to break. And that sometimes happens really, really violently and does a lot of damage. I really like the mechanic for them breaking. Because if you use a shard, then you have to draw a card from the action deck. And the shard will tell you on which cards of an action deck it will break. For those that break really easy, it could be something like black cards. Or for some that don't break as easily, it could be something like face cards. Or if they break even less easy, then it could be red face cards or something like red 2 to red 5. And there are some with very, very weak powers, so to speak, that only break if you draw a joker. And drawing jokers is usually a very, very bad thing because that normally means that a shot goes boom, which spells pain for everybody in the close vicinity. That is stuff you can discover that the aliens left behind, which I had to talk about because of the implants and the posthumans, even though that took a bit away from the gear chapter, which nominally is Vazan's part. Sorry. <laughs> it's fine. And I promise I'm almost done with the setting description. <laughs> yeah, there's a bit more. Yeah, everything else is in part two of the podcast. See you next year. <laughs> Oh, dear God. Well, the book provides a small map with more places on them around the settlement of chapter, which you can visit. And the cool thing is, each of these places comes with a small description and a list of plot hooks, and about half of them even come with dedicated adventures. And that's what I meant with this book packs a lot of bang for your buck. You get so much setting material here to use. There is a lot of prologue story, but there is so much material there 
for how the world is right now. It's borderline insane. And the really cool thing is that it focuses on a reasonably small area of the northwestern United States. I believe it is in the state of Wyoming, but I tried to look up some of the places it mentioned on Google Maps and I couldn't really make sense of it. So I assume they took places they knew and liked and kind of built their own map. Otherwise, it had a really, really weird scale. <laughs> so some of the places I would like to shortly talk about, and that's not really all of them. There are so many in there. There are breach zones, which are basically rips in our dimensional space where you can travel into the breach, which the ghosts used to transport themselves into our solar system. And these breach zones are very, very varying in what they do. They are, for lack of a better word, extra-dimensional places you can travel to. And some of them are just plain deadly and will most likely kill you. And some of them are lush paradises that will only partially kill you if you are new to it and don't know which fruits are actually edible and which not. There's one of those zones which is called the Verdant, and it brings you a table where you draw cards if you just eat stuff from there, and it will then tell you what the effect is, which I think is really, really cool. And it's something nice if you have a player that is part of the Scouting Guild, because then that is something they can actually explore, and they can start mapping fruits or other edibles and bring that knowledge back to chapter. I thought that is a really, really cool thing. Right. It's a really small edition. It's just a small table, but it adds so much to the whole book and exploring idea. I was a bit afraid at first that these breach zones are more like an excuse to do basically spin-off adventures. You know, like you have a group playing the after and everyone is like, oh man, we could do a pirate one shot one day and the GM is like, okay, we would do a breach zone where everyone is a pirate or something like that. But I noticed that after reading it a bit further that it's much better integrated into the setting than I thought at first. Yeah, you were thinking of rifts. Something like that, right. It's something that is used in some settings just to have a reason to just change the pace for a bit. It's not a new idea per se. I mean, it was in, for example, the Dark Eye, the Globally, whatever they're called. <laughs> yeah, that's like a silly example. In Heroes of Terror, it's used. I forgot what they're called there again. Um, Been too long since we reviewed that. Yeah. <laughs> Go back and check out our review of Heroes of Terror. We'll talk about it. <laughs> totally. And this is by no means meant as a critique to Rifts, because within the idea and the fluff of the setting of Rifts, these, well, Rifts, absolutely work. And they do what they are supposed to do. And as was unsaid, over here, the breach zones, they do exactly what they are supposed to do. They introduce a very exotic and alien and unpredictable element. There are great riches to be taken out of certain breach zones, including the super deadly ones, or probably especially the super deadly ones. But that's going to take a lot of pioneer spirit and just a dash of madness to venture in there. Another other, well, settlement I would like to point out is the Phoenix State. They are special because they are apparently remnants of armed forces that have made it all the way through the war and strangely immune to the tech-destroying nanites, as in 
they have working planes. Their gear doesn't fail just because it exists. And they are also super xenophobic and human-phobic and everyone-phobic. And they shoot everyone that isn't Phoenix State on sight. Fantastic. Make of that what you will. There is an adventure regarding them in the book. And it might shed some light. But for you to know, you would have to buy the book and read that or play that. There are also Native Americans settling in the area. They are collectively called the tribe by the people of Chapter. It is noted that they are descendants of the Eastern Shoshone or Shoshone. I'm very sorry, listening Native Americans, that I don't know how to pronounce that tribe. And Arapaho tribes. And I assume there are a lot more tribes surviving because it just said that the Native Americans had a lot more knowledge of nature and everything to fall back on and venture out into the wilds to not be found by the butchers. My point of critique here is that we get exactly two tribe NPCs in the book. One of them is a chieftain of one of the tribes, and the other one is a bounty hunter living in Chapter, and she's just borderline evil. <laughs> we get two tribes people, one that we probably won't have any contact with, except if we run those exact plot hooks that are provided there. And the other one that we have an actual chance of meeting is going to portray the tribe as bloodthirsty, ruthless people that will slit your throat if it means that they get a bigger cut of the haul. Ouch. Yeah. The tribe sounds like a really, really cool concept, and there's some really cool ideas in there for their customs and everything in the text. I just wish we had gotten to know more about them via some more NPCs and not basically get one we might never meet and one evil one, if you get what I mean. I like it, you know, Manuel has at the start of the episode, it's like, oh, it's so much material in this book, it's, it's such a huge book, <laughs> and a few minutes later, it's like, ah, oh, that's not enough material here, could be more emphasis. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I get your point. I would like some salt with my crow, yes. Yep, that is fair. There is a ton of material, and I wish it would extend to the tribe, because... I am not Native American, and I assume a lot of, lot of people that are going to read this book are not Native American. So I just kind of wish that there would have been more meat on the section of the tribe to just teach me about them and hopefully present just like an honest portrayal of Native Americans. I think that would have been a great fit for this book. I mean, their portrayal in here as the tribe is cool. I like it. Great description, great plot hooks. I'm just unhappy with their portrayal via the NPCs. That's really what I'm saying. All right. So speaking of NPCs, that is a bit hard to read because sometimes NPCs are provided as pure fluff text with a reference to a stat block later in the game. Sometimes they are provided as a stat block with a reference to fluff later in the game. Or sometimes they are provided as fluff with a stat block, but with a reference to a point later in the game where I assume they're being reprinted again for convenience. So that makes referencing specific NPCs kind of tedious especially because there is no index where i could just say oh i just want to look up old man crow oh i hopefully better remember where in the book his stat block and description text is for those of you wondering it's page 87 
or page 207. See, that is what I mean. <laughs> I wish that would have been a bit more concise as a presentation for information or have an index. And with that, I'm actually done with talking about the setting. <laughs> And you have no idea how much I had to gloss over and how much I just flat out left out because there is not enough time. <laughs> yeah, I totally feel that. I mean, I read through the chapter as well and took some notes and it's so much. <laughs> but it's good. It's good. Okay, so that leaves me with only two more things, characters and setting rules, and those will be reasonably quick. Character creation is just your basic average Savage Worlds Adventure Edition. Character creation, with one exception that I really, really like, they removed the core skill Persuasion and replaced it with the now core skill Survival. That makes sense. Yeah, a lot of people just live out in the wilds and they may not talk for people for weeks and weeks and weeks. But it is still a post-apocalyptic world. People are rebuilding society. So everybody learns from a very, very young age on how to survive in a world that is now still kind of geared to kill you. So I really like that change and I like that it demonstrates how the core skills should be used and adapted to fit your setting. Yeah. Nice. 10 out of 10. As for races, there are not that many. There are two human races. Your average Joe human. No change there. You get a free edge. Done. Nice. Then there are the changed. I've already talked about the changed. The changed are, to recap that, humans that have been infected with the nanites from the gene bombs and didn't go mad and didn't die from the changes. I really, really like the concept of the changed because they get basically biotechnological mutations which can look super differently. And the book gives a lot of really great examples what it could look like. It could really be just biological mutations like outgrowths and slime and natural forming dermal plates on you. Or it could go full on technology like living LED lights growing on your skin and your eyes being being replaced by LCD screens, which are actual examples from the book. Yeah, it's really wild. I believe there are also some illustrations towards that end. There is one guy with a big crab pincer as one arm, and it looks amazing. As I said, artwork, top-notch. So the cool thing about playing a changed is you get to pick your anomalies, which are your beneficial changes. There are minor and major anomalies. And I only have a small critique that some of the anomalies seem a bit unbalanced, and not that worth it from a mechanical viewpoint, but that's only a few of them. And for the most part, they are really, really solid and it's just super fun to read. And after you've picked your anomalies, you get cosmetic changes and you don't get to pick them. You draw cards that tell you how your character's body changed. That's so cool. I like that a lot because it means you can make the character you want to make from a mechanical point. And then you draw cards and get told how that looks cosmetically, but you still have enough leeway to incorporate that into your concept 
of your character. Like, it doesn't tell you that you have LED screens for eyes. It just tells you that your eyes are super different and noticeably so. And then it gives you a few examples. Like, you could have outreaching eyes on stalks like snails have, or you could have screens as eyes, or maybe you don't have eyes but can somehow still see. I really, really like that concept. Well, but on the negative side, you automatically are an outsider because, well, you are changed, you are tainted by alien technology and a lot of people really look down on that or are simply very afraid of you. And I think that's a really good point because that's something I see sometimes in settings that might be more on the kitchen sink side that you have boring old humans and there's special snowflakes, mutants, whatever. And these mutants are still accepted because, oh, they're normal, but everyone can, I don't know, grow a pincer arm or have outreaching eyes or anything, but no one cares. And here it is more met with a bit of suspicion or maybe even stronger emotions from some factions, at least, real hostility. Yeah, the church will, I mean, not burn you at the stake, but they are very, very against the change. And just to touch upon what you said... It kind of depends on the setting, yeah, really. In a kitchen sink setting, it may make sense that the mutant is accepted because it's a natural thing. It has been around for a thousand years, and if it is in Warhammer 40k, then that means, yeah, people got used to it, and they are now part of society. And in the after, it absolutely makes in-game fluff sense that the changed are met with suspicion, because their changes originate from alien technology, the same aliens that bombed humanity almost back into the Stone Age. I probably would be suspicious too if alien technology that was used to kill everybody I once knew now means that my neighbor is growing a third eye or something. Like, I wouldn't mind him for being my neighbor, and he would probably still be cool, but he has tech in him that is... Plain creepy. Not human, and we don't know what it actually does. And I guess that says some horrible things about my character. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, as human character, not player character, but moving on. There are then also two alien races you can play. There are the Helots, which are really, really big, like think troll size. They're blue with white marble patterns on their skin. They are ex-slaves of the Butchers, and a lot of them remained on Earth and basically freed themselves of the influence of the Butchers when the Butchers all left or were killed, and are now pretty much integrated into human society. And this is the point where we come back to what Vazant just said. There are two alien races, and both of them are pretty much normal for their human companions. Like in chapter, there's a lot of helots and the other alien race, scavs, I'm going to come to them in a second. They just live there and they are part of society. If they pull their own weight, they are welcome. So uh, the helots, well, they are big, they are strong, they make excellent bodyguards, they are very, very focused in what they do. And the downside is they are not the smartest because, well, they are genetically engineered and bred slaves and they were just engineered to not question orders. So thinking isn't really their strong point. It doesn't say they are stupid and they are not. They are just a bit slow and it might take them a while to grasp new concepts and different ideas, which I like as an approach. 
It's something I've done myself in the past. And because I think just having a race describe them as, yeah, they're dumb. That's just boring. And that is not how a race works. I mean, with genetic manipulation, you could possibly say that it's a thing. But even then, it's kind of boring if you have a whole race of beings that are just idiots. Just means, yeah, cool. Here we have the comedic relief of the party. Yay. <laughs> and for every session, because we know they are all idiots. And these guys are just, well, they are not the smartest, but they are not dumb. So you may come across one that also doesn't have common knowledge over a D4, and he might be easily fooled by spinning a tall tale. But then you might come across one that has wandered the earth and knows a lot of stuff. And then you try to outsmart him and he will think about it for a bit longer and then see through the crap you were trying to serve him and knock you the heck out. <laughs> so, yeah, I really like that approach. And then last, we have the Scavs. The Scavs are a race that lived as parasites on the butcher motherships and they just stayed hidden away in the deepest depths of the cargo holds and scavenged away with whatever they could find to survive. And when the dropships landed, they just spread out over the earth and settled there. And ever since, they have been here and they are changing. They don't live as long as humans. And they change and kind of adapt very, very quickly. Like the scavs that initially landed on Earth apparently were more insect-like. And the scavs, as they are explained and illustrated now, look very almost human. Like you can see from their faces and kind of their general build that they are not quite human. But it seems they are getting there, which worries some people that is a bit of fluff that is present and it talks about their own council they have which apparently tells them how the next generation should mutate and i really like that as a plot hook yeah it's something that a gm can work with and if there's a scaf player in the party that could make for some absolutely amazing story arcs if it's a long ago in campaign so i really like those small tidbits presented for the scavs last but not least at least on my list are the setting rules there are only two. First one is that'll leave a mark which simply means heavy damage does gritty damage when you are not wearing heavy armor Mm, that makes sense. The interesting part in this is there is only a single regular weapon in the gear chapter that does heavy weapon, the sniper rifle. They made this a setting rule, so it's obviously not meant for human-on-human -human conflict or human-on-helot-on-scav conflict, but I assume there are a lot of aliens in the bestiary that do heavy damage. And since heavy armor is also something that probably isn't easy to come by, I assume that this setting rule, while small, has a huge impact when fighting outside of settlements. The second setting rule is simply titled Things Break, which is a very short title for a super heavy impact, and I love the mechanics. 
It simulates that the nanites that were dropped with the gene bombs are still around and they are still attacking modern technology. It's mentioned throughout the book that with the death of the butchers and the disappearance of the last intact landing ships, the gene bomb nanite clouds have thinned considerably, but the nanites are still around. So what does that mean in game terms? It means item accumulates stress. This is simulated via stress tags. An item gains a stress tag if you roll a critical failure while using an item. Or if you roll a critical failure for something that didn't involve an obvious item, a random item in your collection of items suffer a stress tag just from everyday wear and tear and the influence of those nanites. A stress tag has hard effects. There's a long list and you draw cards which specific stress effect your piece of gear develops. And they range from, in my opinion, absolutely hilarious. But for a player, I guess they would still be super annoying. <laughs> and to outright dangerous. Like, there's one that is called Fouled, and I'm going to quote from the book here. The item oozes greasy residue or appears to be made of separating flesh and it emits a disgusting stench. It sounds just super funny, but you have to realize how horrible that is when that happens in-game. Yeah. Let's say you are using armor and you get hit and... I guess if you crit failed your soak roll, then your GM could say, cool, that is a stress tag for your armor. And then you draw the wrong card and it becomes fouled. And you can watch as the armor that was just pierced by an arrow or a bullet starts growing flesh over it and starts to stink to the high heavens. In other settings, that would probably be a spirit roll to not lose sanity. Yeah. In the after, it's like an, oh, crap, not this again moment. <laughs> so people know about it, they are used to it, but they will still be annoyed to hell and back. And some of those effects can be outright deadly, and not all of them are obvious to the wearer the instant they happen. It's a really long table. There are a lot of stress tags and I see so much potential to make your own. I really, really, really like this system and it just fits the idea of these ever-present tech-destroying nanites to a T. Really, really well done mechanic. Love it. To be honest, when I read about gear degradation, my first thought was, not again. Thank you, same. <laughs> To be fair, it's more because of video games than because of tabletop games. But I've played a few Fallout games, I played The Outer Worlds, I played Breath of the Wild, and every time there's this gear degradation thing, it just gets on my nerves. I think it's super annoying and just eats time and doesn't get any fun. <laughs> but in this case, I have to agree, it's really well done. And it doesn't only make sense in the post-apocalyptic setting, but it has surprising and new effects and will definitely change how you work with gear. I think the underlying reason or motivation for this is still for part that you can't keep things. Not for long, at least, because after a while they start, I don't know, twitching or grow flesh or just break. 
And I get that on a game mechanical level, but this motivation still bugs me. But I'm sure that in this case, in which you don't have like percentage numbers all the time and you need to collect 50 armors of the same kind to repair the one you have, that it would actually be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. And I like how it ties into critical failures and that you cannot per Corsa, which also cannot Benny critical failures. So when you roll that double one, you're going to go like, oh, crap, in more than one way. <laughs> and I really, really love that because it's in a way that makes the whole table groan. But it isn't because of the sheer frustration of things, as you just mentioned, but because it ties into the game world and is explained by the game world. And what you mentioned with a critical failure, that's one big difference between these annoying video game mechanics I talked about and the mechanics used here. Because the critical failure doesn't happen that much, I think, in a usual Savage Worlds game. And a critical failure is always, or should always, be some dramatic effect. So, especially if you have some edges I'll talk about later, it's not like this happens all the time and you can't do anything about it. You can still repair it with a lot of effort if you really, really want to, but it probably makes more sense to just switch it out and move on with your life. Yeah, mechanically speaking, the chances for critical failures are in the, I think, 05 to 1.5% chance. So it's not going to happen that often. And when it happens, well, you have one more thing to swear about. And with that, that is my main part done. So that means I can now lean back, enjoy my drink and listen to Vazant explain more stuff from the after. Yeah, <laughs> starting with handicaps that you can use for your characters. There are a few handicaps from the Core Savage Worlds rules that are not used in here. Doubting Thomas is not used. I mean, I'd say it doesn't make much sense in this setting anyway, but the other one that's not used is all thumbs. And that's because this is tied into the gear degradation mechanics. I think one result you can draw is that you get all thumbs while using this particular kind of equipment. So it's punishing enough in this world dealing with equipment that you can't use it as a single handicap for your character. Well, that's fine. Good idea. There are a few new handicaps, mostly vulnerabilities and stuff like that which fit into the setting really well and give you a bit of spotlight or a possibility for bennies or they just give you trouble in certain situations that might come up in this game. There are also some edges from the core rules that are not used on the after. For example, Gadgeteer is not used here, although you could imagine that this would work in a post-apocalyptic setting. Also, Rich isn't in there and Filthy Rich as well. That's something that will definitely shape how this setting works. And I'm positive that this will still yield interesting results because there are new edges that might make life interesting. For example, if you're, you're thinking in a post-apocalyptic setting, I could still be rich somehow, right? I mean, I could have my own town or uh, some valuable things. Yes, and that's the edge Bunkerlord. And if you have this edge, you get a set of examples or possibilities what you own exactly. 
So instead of this more generic, you have stuff, you have a more specialized edge. That reminded me a bit of Apocalypse World, if you play that. Where you also have these character perks and then choose one of these uh, possibilities. And there are a lot of race-specific edges that might, for example, differentiate your changed character from others or make your scaf more special. And some of these edges, this was interesting for me to see, have different versions, so to speak. So they do look interesting, and I think they are well made. But compared to the core rules, they might seem a bit more complicated. And maybe even a bit confusing if you're reading through this at first glance. And these are more specialized edges that tie into the setting and that are connected to the different factions. So there are some edges that you can only take if you're part of the librarians, for example, or if you're part of the chapter militia and so on. That's a small critique, I guess, I have, is that sometimes it's a bit weird to read stuff if you read the book for the first time and then just make sense of it. And then you read on and it's like, oh, that is what that references. So I'm not sure if it could have used a few more references or if it is the general structure. And it's not that much of a problem because it's nothing game-breaking. It's just a few instances that make you scratch your head. And then you read on and then 10, 20 pages later, you're like, oh, that's what that meant. Okay, cool. Makes sense now. And then you just go back, reread a hindrance or an edge, and then it makes perfect sense and you just go on. So nothing that bad. Yeah. What I really like are the two edges that tie into the whole stress system. So there are actually edges that help you prevent stress tags and there are edges that help you remove stress tags. And both are very, very expensive to do in the field. So they, are, they give you possibilities but you will pay through the nose for them in bennies. But yeah, that's something that you can work towards. You know, if you really don't like your gear breaking and you want this revolver that you started out with, then you might look as a player at this list and say, okay, this is the edge I'm working towards. I want to be able to do this. Mechanically, I think all these edges check out and that's especially a good job because all these faction edges with different versions are balanced against in each other and everything so that probably took quite some time and work to do. The only thing that bugs me a bit is that these faction edges give you a plus two on persuasion inside of this specific group and you get these like on top if you take these faction edges. That might depend on how you run your game and how hard you want to make persuasion tests or persuasion challenges and of course how often they would appear in your game. So just to give an example here, if you take the edge breach explorer then you have to be seasoned, you have to have already connections especially to the scouting guild and be a woodsman. So Obviously, you're some kind of scout and you have excellent connections to this faction already. And then you get a plus two when dealing with other members of the scouting guild on top of that. It's probably just a small point of critique, but I thought this wasn't really needed. So maybe it is just to balance out these edges and for some kind of point system, it makes sense to put this on. But 
yeah, this appears in some parts of these edges and I wasn't that fond of it. That's really my uh, really few points of critique on these edges. Yeah, overall, I really liked what I read and they seem well balanced. Somebody obviously had sound mechanical work in mind when creating them and there is the odd outlier, but I didn't spot anything that would be game-breaking or just way, way on top of everything else. So yeah, really, really like the design here. Yeah, sure. I mean, I totally agree that there's nothing that's game-breaking or plain bad or anything like that. Not in the slightest. So we have aliens. We have the post-apocalypse. Why not put arcane backgrounds on top of it? <laughs> and this might seem a bit much at first, but but I think it fits right in here. There are three new arcane backgrounds that have really good descriptions about what they are and what they're not. And one of them is even based on vigor. Never heard of that. So all of these arcane backgrounds somehow work with the breach or the breach energies, but do it in different ways. The different skills and different power lists make them stand apart, in my opinion, and don't feel that samey. There are tips for trappings in there that are not binding, so you can totally come up with your own if you want. And they also have different kinds of backlash. So even if they are all based on the same energy, they seem different enough and might spice up your game quite a lot. So on top of all these possibilities you get from different factions and different races or kinds of changed post-humans, you also get these arcane backgrounds to flesh out your character even more. And I think it's just great that they put that in here. Yeah, I really, really like the descriptions alone of the arcane backgrounds. They are three of them and they are really distinct from each other. I really like the idea of an arcane background based on Vigor. I have never seen that anywhere before. Kudos. Awesome. And the examples given for trappings for the available powers is just top-notch and something I will definitely take note of for creating my own someday because that is just top-notch service to the players because there are some players that will just read the description of say the flash crafter and have an immediate mental image of what their powers look like and then there are others that just do not have that and can't do that and are super happy if you provide them examples and then either just use the examples which is perfectly fine or go from there and look at it and say like oh cool i would like that but have it look a bit different like this and i really 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 like that so yeah once again well done yeah because i do think that is a part of savage world that is often a bit misunderstood or misrepresented because people just check out the power list like they would in other settings where they have 200 powers and they're like okay i take uh, bolt and what does it do uh, i don't know it kills people and it goes boom i don't know and just skim over this trapping thing which is, in my opinion, really a wasted opportunity to describe your powers and connect them more with a setting here. On to the equipment. I mean, it breaks all the time, but still there is some sense in talking about it. As usual, you get $500 for equipment. 
Of course, there are no dollars in here because there's no government who gives out dollars, but they separate the fluff, how these dollars are manifesting in your setting, and the mechanics that you have, like these 500 currency thingies to spend on equipment. Because there is no currency. But lots of thingies. Yeah, so there's a lively trade society. Of course, everyone is interested in useful and not broken or stinky, fleshy equipment. So you don't pay with coins or feathers or bits of paper. You pay with salvage. And it makes sense that these things and doodads that you trade with take more space than if you just carry a few bills of paper around. And it gives tips on how this would apply in your setting and how to deal with it. Thank you for that, because this would otherwise be something... I might disagree about with some other players and then we have to figure out first what salvage is and how much space it need and how easy it would be to carry and blah blah blah. The one thing I would have liked from salvage was like a small text box that explained no you cannot break up your salvage into just the stuff you need. Like Oh, yeah, we need to descend this cliff. Well, my salvage obviously includes a rope that I was planning to trade. So now we can use the rope I now magically have. I would have liked a short text box explaining like salvage is just meant for everything that is tradable. And it also means that whatever is in there will not help you resolve the situation at hand. You can define what it is at the moment you trade it for something, but not use it as a deus ex machina bag of holding during an adventure. Except if you have the scavenger edge from Savage World's Core, which allows you to find items, not really out of thin air, but it would allow you to just pull a useful item out of your salvage, once per encounter. I really would have liked a note on how that interact. I'm not sure if they were even aware of it, but that was something that came to my mind when I read the chapter about salvage. Because I know some players that will read this and immediately go, oh my god, I always have a bag with me with everything that I will ever need to help me solve the adventure at hand. <laughs> no, not how it works. <laughs> Yeah, and of course, it's all useful stuff, because this is the most valuable stuff, right? Personally, I would totally be okay with some kind of house or setting rule that said, okay, for a bunny, you can switch $50 worth of salvage into $50 worth of tools right away, and then you can just retroactively explain that this is the rope that you were actually planning to sell or something like that, but that's... I think something that might not be cool in other games. If you run your game with a focus on not having all the tools all the time, because it's after the apocalypse, and one player is just constantly pulling out the problem-solving equipment out of his pocket, which is like the scavenger edge just all the time, <laughs> then yeah, that could mess with your game. I like your solution having that as a setting rule. Yep, that would have made a great setting rule. But hindsight is twenty twenty. so... And nope, <laughs> and there's nothing saying that you cannot have that in your game. That is something, now that I know of the idea, thank you, Vazant, if I ever ran the after, then that is something I would 
add on as a setting rule, definitely, to make salvage more multi-purpose. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Let's see how that works. As if I ever have time to run stuff. Uh, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> There's also levels of availability, which makes total sense, especially in a post-apocalyptic setting. And I'm happy that they're included in here. Because otherwise the GM would just need to figure it out for every equipment and every settlement. And they just did this work for all GMs for the aft out there. Thank you. There are no weapon stores, by the way. I like that. I mean, I see why that makes sense in smaller societies. That there's not one shop that just sells weapons and stuff like that. I like that they had fast rules for how to sell your equipment because sure you have all these doodads but maybe you have dedicated equipment with you and then you need to sell it and who's gonna buy it for how much salvage i think there are a lot of tables that are not all very interested in these shopping and selling adventures and for this reason it's great that there's two paragraphs about how to sell equipment fast your rolls thank you There's also a separation between available equipment that you can actually get or find and MacGuffin kind of equipment. So some of these things are available somewhere and can be found and have stats, and the other ones are just rumors and legends and might not even be real. But if they're real at your table, they added sets to it. And that's something I really like, because I'm really unsatisfied with some RPG books when they're like, yeah, there might be this item, and it's not even true, and by the way, we didn't include stats either, because uh, just make something up. It's like, yeah, thanks for nothing. <laughs> it depends. There are instances where that is okay, especially if it's made clear through the GM that... We don't define if this thing is real. If it's real, it is up to you and it's up to you to make up the story arc leading up to it. So any stats that we provide would pretty much influence that. And in this case, that doesn't matter to the meta plot or the setting. So just make up your own stuff for your own story arc. Don't be constricted by our idea of what it might be. But that is really, really hard to pull off. So in this case, I really like that they, for example, gave stats for certain alien weapons that may have been left behind. And I really like how that ties into the name for the chapter about this, because the chapter is named, But where are the ray guns? <laughs> because yeah. the regular equipment is just all man-made equipment. That is everything humans can produce. Nobody had time to plunder a butcher dropship for maybe a nanoforge or something that produces bioslug railguns, which is a real thing in the book, by the way. Like the bioslug railgun, not the flashforge or the nanoforge. Flashforges are a real thing. Nanoforges are not. Maybe they are. It's your, it's your game. You can do what you want. Okay. But yeah, my point is humanity never got to the point where they could construct laser rifles and stuff like that. So anything like that will be an alien weapon. And having stats for it is really cool. But it's also really clear this is a MacGuffin. This is something that's not going to lay around in the nearest cave for your adventurers to find. This is going to be something that will 
absolutely redefine parts of the setting because there are factions that want to get off this planet and they are studying technology and they would pay everything to get that piece of gear. And I'm reasonably sure that includes paying with your organs on the outside of your body splattered over a reasonably medium-sized burst template. <laughs> this is going to be important if it appears in the setting and they dedicated an entire short chapter to it to make that clear. And I really, really like that. Yeah, it's really well thought through. Of course, there are also other alien artifacts. Manu already touched upon them with the remnants, the butcher remnants. Basically, they are very risky implants. And you already mentioned that they're similar to Ripper Tech, if you're already familiar with Rippers. The risks of using or getting them seem okay to me if you have a competent doctor or someone with healing skill with you especially if that one is a wild card, because the side effects that you don't want are only active if you run a failure. There's still disadvantages of them. So these butcher remnants are not stuff you have to get to be a legendary adventurer in this game or stuff that a veteran is supposed to have. It's not part of a gear treadmill, so to speak, not a must-have, and that's something I really appreciate in Savage Worlds and especially in this setting. The other alien artifacts are the ghost shards. As the name suggests, they are remnants of the ghosts and not of the butchers. They work a bit differently. You have to count how much you used them in the last 24 hours, which might be a tiny bit of bookkeeping. And they degrade by use in some way, but for that they have smaller disadvantages. So good difference to the butcher remnants here. There's a card drawing mechanic on basically what happens if you use them. And the card drawing mechanic used here for the ghost shards makes using them a bit more interesting and varied without making the game more complex all the time, I think. This is all really cool and well made, but I guess it wouldn't be the after if there wasn't an extra chapter or paragraph that would make it even better. Because, of course, someone might think... I want to build my own alien artifact, but all these authors just made up something without telling me how to balance these or how to come up with my own butcher remnant. Not this one. You have a whole page here where the author or the authors tell you how to create your own remnants. There's not like a hard and fast balancing mechanic in here, but I think it's explained well enough. And really helps you to create your own alien artifacts, remnants, shards, if you really want that. And I think that's just exemplary on how to give the GM or the whole table all the tools they need to really enjoy your setting to the fullest. Yeah, I really, really like that they gave those examples for both shards and the implants that was something I was missing from a lot of other products, just a general idea of why is this done the way it is? What is your basic thought process behind it? And they laid it out beautifully here. 
And in a way that for me as a designer myself really helps me understand and makes me able to transport that idea into other settings for stuff that I might make or introduce into other settings. I love little pieces like this. And Manu already mentioned it. They also include quite a few pages for adversaries and embassies you can meet both human and well not so human and as usual for these kind of pages they really add to the setting while also give you interesting encounters for whenever you need them you can just look in here and get some really freaky interesting or deadly adversaries or monsters to put in your the after game Yeah, fun encounters like boom bugs and ghost ooze. Yeah, yeah. I corrected myself to interesting. Uh. <laughs> interesting there, most definitely. What I also really love and that ties into how I started this whole review is the amount of of artwork that is in there. I don't think I mentioned it at the beginning of the review. The amount of artwork is insane in this book. There's barely a page where there is no illustration or artwork. Every NPC has artwork. Every location has artwork. There are a lot of maps in there. And each entry of the adversaries of the after chapter is illustrated every single one that is something that is really really rare because artwork is expensive so i get it that not everybody can afford that and the after absolutely went the extra mile to make sure that the entries that are in the book you know what they do and then you also know what they look like yeah and if you get the book Just have someone copy you the text of page 198 of the wrecker, then read that text and then have them show you the illustration and tell me if your mental image was even close. <laughs> Mine wasn't. I mean, I, of course, saw the illustration when I read the text, but I read the text without realizing the illustration much. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's probably about this and this and this looking and it looks kind of cute and uh, I mean cutish it is an adversary let me just quote it these creatures were once moose elk or longhorn cattle that were changed by the butchers now they wander the wind river valley riddled with butcher biomechanoid implants and following genetically imprinted programming at a point I was like yeah well okay that could still look kind of relatable to one of the animals that I actually know and then my conscious mind realized what the illustration looked at i was like oh fucking hell <laughs> i don't want to meet that ever ever me neither that is how good a job the artwork is doing in this book to transport the setting and how the whole war and the well remnants of the war changed everything and Again, it's already great. We talked about how good it is, how good it looks, and there's something on top. <laughs> it just doesn't stop. They have like a subsection here of adversaries that are called the ferals. And it's not like they just give you two examples of them, like a mook and a chief. 
No, they give you a few examples that serve as a base, so you can customize your personal feral as you want. They have more than one page of specialties on what they could be like. They can breathe fire or can track really well or mimic something. It's just, yeah, so many good ideas. It's really cool. Call today for your personal feral nightmare. For every purchase of a shaman and two champions, we will throw in a scavenger for free. That is 1-800-THE-AFTER. Call 1-800-THE-AFTER for your personal offering right now. Your personal nightmare. Definitely. And at the end, I really like that. After they have this huge chapter about adversaries with all the options, they're like, what about the butchers and the ghosts? They're like, no. We said they left the earth. We don't get you any stats. <laughs> if you want butchers and ghosts in your game, then go do it yourself. We don't do it. Yeah, you're on your own. <laughs> we told you explicitly in the history chapter and throughout everything else that those are gone. If you want to bring the near death of humanity back, good luck. That is not the vision we have for this setting, which is also something I really like. That they really communicate their vision for the setting that well. That is also something that I wish that other settings had, that it told me how the writer envisioned it being used. Yeah. And the after does this exceptionally well. It just tells you what it is and what it wants to be. And then, of course, I mean, it's an RPG product, so you can mold it to your liking and your table as much as you want. But if you want to run it by the book, it tells you very, very well how it wants to be used and what the theme is and what the general feeling is of the game. In addition to the adversaries, you also get the major players, which are not all out to kill you. These are the big wild cards, so to speak, of the setting. They are important figures that might just pop up in your game. They have a background story here and all relevant attributes and edges and specialties and everything. I kind of want to know, and Sean, if you are actually listening to this, if you would like to answer it, cool. Is Old Man Crow actually Odin walking the earth? I'm not going to say anything more than this. Everybody who wants to know what the heck I'm talking about, buy the book. Everybody who owns the book, you will probably understand what I mean. And I'm asking you, Sean, is Old Man Crow actually Odin walking the earth? That's all I have to say. How cool is that? Well, yeah, you can use these major players or wildcards in your game if you want. If not, for example, I really like to come up together with the other players with our own important figures. Then, yeah, just leave it out or just don't feature them as much. No one is forcing you to. Then... On to our verdict. On to the verdict. Step up and be judged. I deem thee worthy. That was a lot more dramatic than I usually do this. No, I already spoiled my opinion of this book in the intro. I love the after. It does so much right and provides so much. Uh, it is one of the more expensive books you can pick up from drive-thru RPG and I say it is absolutely worth every single dollar. It isn't perfect, 
nothing ever is. There will always be someone that can nitpick at something. Yeah. And personally, I say that all my points of critique I bring, with the exception of the missing index, are nitpicking at this point. It is a great, solid, consistent product that brings an amazing vision of a post-apocalyptic positive vision to life. Yeah. Well done. I absolutely recommend it without any downsides to it. Me too. If you want to play anything post-apocalyptic with Savage Worlds, definitely look into the after. I gotta agree with the general vibe. The background story seems really, really dark and hopeless, but the setting itself isn't. And that's, in my opinion, really well done. The only reason not to buy this is if you just want zombies. <laughs> <laughs> Then it's not the setting for you. But for everyone else who likes post-apocalyptic settings, just go take a look at the after buy it and have fun with it. And if you want, tell us how it worked for you or what you loved about it. I'd add to that, if you want zombies, just make feral zombies. Just give them the infecting ability and make them devour the flesh of the living because that is something you can do with the build system of the ferals. And bam! you have a zombie scenario, which would take it a bit more on the darker side again, but still absolutely possible and logical within the fluff of this setting. See, that's how good it is. It doesn't have zombies, but you can add zombies and it doesn't feel weird. I mean, it's Savage Worlds, of course. You have to add zombies at some point, I guess. <laughs> Living up to this cliche. Fair point. On a more abstract point of view, I think this is an absolute stellar example of a good setting because it has this great mix of explaining the whole setting and background and world and still describing a local area and region really well. So you have both a good background and something you can start in right away. It's all fleshed out. You can just drop in there and everything is already described and mapped and hooked with adventures and maps. And did I mention there's not only one full-size adventure at the end, but also small adventures strewn through this book as if they thought, well, maybe we could just add more to the setting yeah it's actually insane they could have just taken all the adventures from this book not published them in this book and made a second book a smaller book just from the adventures that is in <laughs> yeah. there at the after anthology i don't know yeah to add on to what you just said i really like the focus on the small area like so many books just do this whole setting and then they go on to describe the entire world yeah so this is what happened in africa and this is what's left of europe and this is what's left of asia and this is what happened in australia and this is what happened on the south pole and then of course there is south america and central america and north america and the after just does away with all of that because nobody can ever use that in a meaningful way in my opinion and just goes okay here's this little slice of life it's a few hundred square kilometers that is also a few hundred square miles for you yankees <laughs> and here's everything you need to know about this small slice of what i personally believe to be based on wyoming 
and what you can do in there and enough plot hooks to run stuff out of the book and enough ideas to make it your own. And if you don't want to do that, then you now have an idea and a template of how the world works and can set your own settlements and your own adventures somewhere completely else. Yeah. And one single point I still have to mention somewhere, I like how the game helps the GM with all the stuff to come up with new things or drop things in, or if you want to do this as a group, how to invent, for example, new artifacts and stuff like that. But it also gives you tips on how to collectively come up with a group and characters and stuff like that. And that's something that's glossed over in a lot of books, probably to save space and pages, but they obviously didn't do that. And I really appreciate that they put in this as well. Yeah, and if you don't want to make your own characters, there are pregens in at the end of the book after the provided full adventure. Right, there are even pregens. <laughs> I didn't even mention that, I'm sorry. Well, that's why we are too. So the final verdict is... Two out of two, because both of us recommend you go out and buy this book. Well, not go out, because it's a pandemic. So stay at home, Yeah. go on through rpg buy this book. Link for that will be in the description text of this podcast episode, depending on where you listen to it. And with that, we are done with the after. We shall travel back to the present and tell you about this episode's whiskey this episode's whiskey is sponsored by <laughs> <laughs> don't we wish <laughs> okay but actually this episode's whiskey is a highland single malt scotch whiskey called edrador and we picked the 10 year old version because i already have it and I'm not gonna pay more than 200 euros for the 21-year-old version. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm cheap. Yeah, we are totally cheap like that. I should also mention that the best wife on the planet gifted me a Scotch whiskey advent calendar. And yesterday's door, at least, well, yesterday, speaking from the day of this recording, was the Edra door eight year old. So I actually have a direct comparison between the eight year old Edra door and the 10 year old Edra door. So that's going to be interesting. Or it was interesting because I started drinking when we started the recording because it's been one of those weeks. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I did not try it with whiskey stones yet. Um, since you detest those, I think I'll be the one to do it. <laughs> Listen, how you spoil your whiskey is absolutely up to you. I prefer my whiskey neat or with a dash of water. What do you say to the aroma of the Edredor? I'm surprised. I'm very surprised. As I said, I can compare it to the eight-year-old. And the eight-year-old Edrador is a double malt, double cask, and it is a bit peaty, uh, but also very smoky, almost as smoky as some Lefroics I've tasted. The Edrador 10-year-old has absolutely none of that. There's a bit of peat, but just a hint, but there's absolutely no smoke 
which is super surprising to me. So I assume that one of the casks the eight-year-old uses is flamed before they fill the Edredor in it. And they don't do that with the 10-year-old, which makes it very, very smooth. Oh, okay. Hmm. It's just a tad sharp, but not much. And the sharpness is basically gone by the time you swallow. There's also not much of a lingering flavor profile. What is there is mild, but pleasant, but also yeah, gone rather quick. I'd say this is a great whiskey to drink either during eating, if you're the kind of person that enjoys a whiskey during having food, or afterwards to not overpower the taste of, I don't know, a good steak or something that is still a bit lingering. Haven't tried it with water, which I probably should do. So let's do that. See if that changes something. Right. <clears throat> I think it's definitely not obtrusive in any way. What I liked before I put whiskey stones in it was the hint of nuts that they had in the taste. Apparently, that's kind of gone if it's cooled too much. I don't know how it fares for you. I did not detect any hint of nuts, but I'm also very, very bad at discovering individual tastes in whiskey unless they are jumping out of the glass and try to strangle me. I've had one of those in the whiskey calendar as well, but I've talked enough about whiskeys other than the one we're reviewing already. So... Ask me on Discord. Join the Discord. We have one. So this one, I cannot make out any individual tastes, but that is about par for the course for me. Some people call me a whiskey connoisseur. I definitely am not. I'm just a simple guy who enjoys whiskey. And I would say the Edredor 10 is a very pleasant, very mild, as Vazant already put it, non-intrusive whiskey that can easily be enjoyed to a variety of activities, be it just a slight afternoon sip, something you have with your friends after a good meal. I'd say even during a meal, because it, the taste will probably be subverted by the taste of your food again. So yeah, something just to enjoy on the side without taking any focus. Also, it might be a good whiskey for people who don't drink that much whiskey, you know, as an entrance to the world of whiskey. Because if you serve someone like that in Lagavulin... Oh, dear God, yes. <laughs> or rather, oh, dear God, no. Yeah, you probably should not serve someone who has never had contact with whiskey a Lagavulin or, God forbid, a Lefroyk or something. They might not understand the fascination you have for these kind of spirits. Yeah, definitely. I agree. The Adrodor 10 would be a great scotch for someone who wants to take their first few steps into the world of scotch whiskies. And if they don't like the sharpness, they can just add a dash of water. That takes away a bit more of the sharpness, but doesn't impact the flavor. In my opinion, it doesn't bring out any new flavors, but it also doesn't diminish the existing flavors, which is really nice. I really enjoy that. Cool. Okay, so... <clears throat> 
done with the after. There's still a bit of whiskey in my glass, but I think I would say goodbye at this point. Thank you all for listening. And we will catch you all in the next episode. Until then, you can find us on Discord. The Discord address, uh, I cannot say on air because it's one of those weird addresses with just uppercase, lowercase letters and numbers. Just tell them the QR code. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to morse them the QR code. (laughs) But you can find them on our website, which is whiskeyandwildcards.com. And of course, you can contact us via mail, which is podcast at whiskeyandwildcards.com. So until the next time, thank you all for listening. I've been Manu Vest. I'm Vasant. And this was Whiskey and Wildcards. Have a good one. Goodbye and cheers. Cheers.